so obviously, you know, we're talking about the church. Uh, we've been talking about unity. We've been talking about purity. The last couple of weeks, we've been talking about discipline, discipleship. And then last week, is talked about missions and evangelism, kind of wrapped up um, some of the broader things that we talk about as a church and the mission of the church. So this is going to start today a two-part series on sacraments and ordinances. Um, and I'm going to give it a definition of that a little bit later on. Um, but today we're talking about the sacrament or ordinance of baptism. And when I use those words, sacraments and ordinance, uh, I'm going to use them interchangeably. Um, and I'm going to give a definition for that in a little bit. Um, but as I think of those things, just think of those as the same exact thing. Different traditions use them differently. Um, but today we're going to use them interchangeably. So we're talking about baptism. Um, and, and the main point I want to get across today um, is this practice of baptism is ordained by Jesus himself. And so it's a very important ordination, a uh, very important ordinance that we should observe. And as he commands in Matthew 28, uh, I'm going to get that started and read that for us this morning. So if you want to turn to Matthew 28, um, you can open up your Bibles and we'll start there. We'll kind of bounce around to a lot of different texts, talking about baptism, talking about covenants, talking about themes and the practice of baptism. But I want to start right here to kind of give us a, a leap um, and a good pad to go off of. So Matthew 28, these are the last few words of the book and the gospel of Matthew. So starting in verse 16 of Matthew 28, uh, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for this glorious, um, wonderful, beautiful day that you've given us. Thank you for this church um, as we're able to gather and in a different way, um, yet we're still able to gather and be able to see each other in body and be able to hear um, each other fellowship. And even though we have to wear masks and there are different restrictions that COVID has caused, we're so very thankful to be gathered um, today in person. God, give me um, the help I need today to teach on baptism um, and the, the students would be able to um, take this and it would be an encouragement to them. Um, for some of us who have been baptized in the room today, I pray that we would remember our baptism, that we would think about it, um, that it would be a clear picture of the gospel of Christ that saved us um, from the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Um, God, I thank you just for this time, and I pray that you would give us hearts to listen um, to your word and to what you're trying to say to us during this time. Um, I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Jesus commanding here says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So there seems to be something as soon as we go and make disciples, so as soon as the gospel is preached, the direct response after that is that you be baptized. And, and we'll look at some stories in Acts um, of, of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, um, as we'll see in Acts 8. And so I, my prayer and hope today is that you're able to walk away today understanding what baptism is, how it has become the new sign and seal of the new covenant, and why that is a good thing. And last but not least, how baptism points us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as, as I'm sure most of you have seen a baptism in the room, um, some of you may have been baptized already, some of you may have not been baptized. 
Um, and there may be a baptism today. But as you, as you see, um, as the subject, um, the one who is being baptized, goes down into the water, it represents the death and burial of Christ. And as you come up, it's, you see the resurrection of Christ. And so we see that as Baptists, as we believe in what's called a believer's baptism, that is what we mean um, by that baptism. So like I said, this is going to be a two-part series. We're talking about ordinances and sacraments. I'm going to give a definition of a sacrament. This is um, from the Westminster Larger Catechism. This is question 162. What is a sacrament? <clears throat> a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ in his church to signify, seal, and exhibit unto those that are within the covenant of grace, the benefits of his mediation, to strengthen and increase their faith and all other graces, to oblige them to obedience, to testify, and to cherish their love and communion one with another, and distinguish them from those that are without. And to summarize that, it's an it's a outward sign of an inward change, um, baptism is, and, and so is the Lord's Supper, as we remember, as, as Christ says, do this as you remember, as often as you can, um, as you remember me. So my first point I want to, I want to talk about today, um, just simply what is baptism? Um, and I'm going to give a couple definitions of what that is from a couple different confessions. And then Bobby Jameson wrote a good book on baptism, a short little booklet that I recommend to you. Um, so like I said, uh, most of you have been baptized, I'm sure. Some may have not been. I'm sure you've seen a baptism before. So how the word baptism comes apart, it comes from the Greek word baptizo, meaning to dip, plunge, or immerse. Um, and we'll see this as we look at different instances. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith says, baptism is an ordinance in the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to those baptized. It is a sign of their fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of their being grafted into him, of remission of sins, and of submitting themselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. And then, as I said, that booklet about Bobby Jameson, um, his definition is, Baptism is a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water and a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking him or her from the world. So you've heard this, this marking off of, um, and we'll get to this when we talk about the covenants in just a little bit, but when, when someone is baptized, it begins their initiation rite being called a Christian. So when they are, go, when they are being baptized, they are going public. Um, and, and this is why baptism should be done ideally in the context of a local church. Um, as, as you see in our baptism services, it normally happens at the beginning of the service. It, you know, it doesn't really matter if it happens at the beginning, middle, or end. That's not the whole point. Um, the point is that we want to see the baptism in front of the local body. This is a church ordinance. The church determines how this is done. Um, the church will determine uh, what is to be said about this person. And when you look upon the person being baptized, and, and a lot of times we clap and we're excited. It's a very joy-filled moment. And I, mean, and I think we, we, we forget that this is a person being raised from death to life, as Ephesians tells us. We've been made alive in Christ. Um, and we see that in baptism. And so um, as Baptists, we, we have a very distinct stance from other Protestant traditions, from, from the Catholic tradition. And I want to tell you just the history of baptism and the different three views on baptism that are largely accepted um, in Christian circles. So the first one is the Roman Catholic view of baptism. Um, so within the Roman Catholic tradition, baptism is necessary for salvation. The act of baptism itself actually causes regeneration in your spirit. Um, 
Ludwig Ock, uh, he wrote The Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, says, Baptism is that sacrament in which man being washed with water in the name of the three divine persons is spiritually reborn. So when you are baptized, um, you are actually reborn. So your original sin, and then in the Catholic tradition, your venial sins are, are washed away at that point. Um, you have been made new. Um, and here's some um, from, directly from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. By baptism, all sins are forgiven, original sin and all personal sins, as well as the punishment for sin. And those who have been reborn, nothing remains that would impede their entry into the kingdom of God. Neither Adam's sin, nor personal sin, nor the consequences of sin, the gravest of which is separation from God. So you become a new creation. Um, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, Therefore, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, and the new has come within the Catholic tradition. And so, as Baptists, we would reject that. We would say that baptism is not a saving mechanism. And we will see, in, as 1 Peter um, 3.21 talks about it, it talks about, in, in a sense, it is a saving mechanism, but not of the removal of sin, but as a clean and good conscience for God. And so, um, the second one that is different from Baptists is the evangelical paedo-baptist view. And so, this is paedo meaning infant, um, infant baptism, child baptism, and so this is practiced by most other denominations in the Protestant tradition, um, even um, Presbyterians, Methodist, Lutheran, Anglican. Um, and so Charles Hodge was a Presbyterian theologian from the 19th century, and I'm going to kind of take you all through just the understanding of how most other evangelical paedo-baptists come to the view of an infant baptism. So Charles Hodge, his first proposition is the visible church is a divine institution. The visible church does not consist exclusively of the regenerate, those in the covenant. So in the old covenant, in the Israelite covenant, um, under the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, um, the Mosaic covenant, there was Israel. Um, and within the covenant, you had both regenerate and unregenerate people. The covenant seal of circumcision was not saying, hey, this one is saved. Um, or this one has been born again of the Spirit, we are just saying you are included in the covenant. And so in the Presbyterian tradition, um, when an infant is baptized, when it's sprinkled with water, they are not saying, hey, this one is saved. This one has been justified by faith alone. Although the baby could have faith, God can grant that baby faith um, as, a, as a child. Um, they do not say that this baby is saved. Um, it's basically drawing from the old covenant and saying that you are within um, and as Paul tells us, not all of Israel belongs to Israel in Romans 9, 6. And so um, third, the commonwealth of Israel was the church. The church under the new dispensation is identical with that under the old. It is not a new church, but one in the same. So we treat it the exact same way in the Presbyterian and other evangelical paedo-baptist traditions. The terms of admission into the church before the advent were the same that are required for admission into the Christian church. Infants were members of the church under the Old Testament economy. Therefore, they should also be members of the church under the New Testament. So children need and are capable of receiving the benefits of redemption. And so understanding this is less more of, and we'll talk about mode in a little bit. It's less about the mode. It's less about the sprinkling or the immersion, um, but it's more about understanding this idea of the covenant. And Presbyterians will tell you or other evangelical paedo-baptists will say, it's about the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace started as, as, as soon as, as man fell in Genesis 3.15, and it continues today throughout all the covenants. So it's an overarching covenant throughout the entire story of the Bible, the entire redemption story of the Bible. So we must understand the covenant um, then we understand paedo-baptist um, baptisms. And so 
Um, once again, as Baptists, we would reject that. We would say, as you've, you've probably never seen, an infant baptized here at Lakeview Baptist Church. I mean, there's, there's reason for that. Um, and so as Baptists, we believe um, that people um, who have made a credible and believable profession of faith are those who are to be baptized. And so in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, um, there was a mixed community, those who are regenerate and also unregenerate. But under the New Covenant and under Christ, we believe um, just as there was a physical sign for physical birth, there is also a spiritual sign and a physical act of being, ra- being buried into water and being raised to newness of life in the spiritual covenant and in the new covenant. So the new covenant is made up only of regenerate people, people who have been born again. And so we're going to go through the who, what, why, and where of baptism. So we're going to cover all this. Um, and so first, who should be baptized? I've already talked about this a little bit, but let's turn to Acts 8. Turn your Bibles to Acts 8, 34 to give you an account of who should be baptized, the, the prime example of someone who should be baptized. This is Luke writing, and he's talking about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And uh, the Ethiopian eunuch is going along in his chariot. Um, Go over and join the chariot, the Spirit said to Philip, starting in verse 29 of Acts 8. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. Verse 34, and the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scriptures, um, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were getting, going along the road, they came to some water And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Verse 39, and when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. So we see here that as soon as the Ethiopian eunuch um, believed on Jesus and he says, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? There was nothing. And so, um, going back to the understanding of mode and sprinkling and immersion, obviously there was not enough water in the chariot for them to just sprinkle the Ethiopian eunuch. So they wanted to go to a more, um, where there was more readily available, more water, so they could do the immersion. And it says um, in there that they both went down into the water and they came up out of the water. So as you read that, it leads to believe that there was some kind of immersion that happened in there where the Ethiopian eunuch was immersed in the water and then came up. So, um, and, and obviously there, there is no way to know as we baptize people if they're 100% saved. Only God knows the heart as Jeremiah seventeen ten says, I the Lord search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And so there's no way we can be 100% sure of someone's salvation. Um, but, but I believe we can make our best educated guess by bearing um, you know, putting them through a membership class here at Lakeview and, and kind of waiting out to see, hey, do I still want to go through with this baptism? Am I still ready to go public? And am I still ready to make a profession for Christ? And so we baptize those who have made a credible, believable profession of faith. Someone who has repented of their sins, put their faith and trust in Christ and has believed on him with their whole heart. 
So let's move on to the what, what happens when we are baptized. Um, so I must, I must say, we must stay away from saying that it does more than it actually does. So we, we must stay away from saying that baptism saves us. Baptism does not save us. We are only saved by Christ alone, through faith alone. Uh, but we also must be, must be weary of saying this, that it does nothing. And I think most Baptists are, are prone to do so. Um, and, and we say that it does less than it actually does. So let's just meet in the middle. Let's come to the middle right here and talk about what happens when someone is baptized. Let's turn to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3. We're going to start in verse 18. 1 Peter 3.18. So here Peter is writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And he writes starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience." through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So we see here um, that baptism, it, it doesn't save you in a sense that is a removal of dirt from the body. So when you're dirty and you're washed, the dirt comes off of you um, and you become clean. And we know that the cleansing fact of becoming a believer happens when justification by faith alone and God saves you by his grace and his mercy. So we know that, that Peter is not trying to say that baptism saves you here. And he says that by, by clearly saying, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So in being baptized, we are being obedient to God. We are being obedient to Christ's example of being baptized in the Jordan River. And it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we're able to obtain this good merit. So without the resurrection, without any of that, your faith is futile, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. And so God perhaps give grace to the subject for the faithfulness they have portrayed in being baptized, following Christ's command, um, and it gives you an appeal to God for a good conscience. Anytime a believer is faithful and obedient to Christ, he is in some way blessed by God. Here is a prayer from the book of Common Prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that by water and the Holy Spirit you have bestowed on upon this your servant the forgiveness of sin and have raised him to the new life of grace. Strengthen him, O Lord, with your presence and fold him in the arms of your mercy and keep him safe forever. Um, and so even baptize, baptism acts as a seal, acts as a sign, is that we are sealed in Christ. We are his and he is ours. And we proclaim that um, until he comes back. The why. So why ought we to be baptized? Uh, I'm taking this straight from Lakeview's stance on baptism. So I was looking at my old um, booklet that I got from the Discover Lakeview class that I participated about a year ago. Um, and the three things it says is, number one, we want to follow Christ's example of being baptized. Um, so you don't have to turn here, but I'm just going to quickly read from Matthew 3, 13 and 17. This is an account of Jesus being baptized. And so it says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so uh, we see the example of Jesus going before us and being baptized. Um, And this idea of washing and water, and we'll get to more of the theme of water throughout the whole Bible um, as an instance, but this was the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And so just as us as Christians, as we are baptized, it begins our new life. It begins our new life with Christ. It begins our new kingdom work um, in the kingdom of God. And so uh, we want to follow Christ's example in doing so and beginning our ministry. As I said in Matthew 28, 19, we want to follow Christ's command that he gives in the Great Commission. And then number three, we're going public. So we're committing ourselves to the Lord Jesus in a public fashion. Matthew 10, 33, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So um, if we're not willing to be baptized in front of our local congregation who support us and love us and believe in us, um, then I I dare say it would be even harder in in the real world where we'd be persecuted um, and hated on for being a Christian um, to, be, to be public and be a professor and, and Christian in the, in the world. Um, so we must go public in front of our church and say that we are committing ourselves wholly to the Lord um, and the Lord is loving us the same. And last but not least, where should we be baptized? Is there a certain place that the Bible talks about? Is there a certain time? Is there a certain day that we should be baptized? And um, like I said earlier, before your local congregation, I would say is the most ideal circumstance. Obviously, there are other places where um, there could be as, as you are sick and in your deathbed, there might be somehow you can be baptized. And, and you know, there are certain circumstances that are, you know, you're not able to come in front of a local congregation to be baptized. Um, but uh, me and Aaron were talking about this a little bit earlier, probably a month ago, and thinking about baptism and seeing the local church as at Lakeview, we have about 600 people right now who are coming to services. Seeing someone be baptized, um, it does something within us. It it makes our heart leap for joy as we see a brother or sister come to saving faith in Christ. Um, And baptism in the Lord's Supper, it, it, it typically does something that a sermon or a worship song or a prayer just can't do. Um, And this is why God gave us these ordinances. This is why God gave us these sacraments, that we would take them seriously, that we would love them, that we would do them in a way that honors and glorifies God. Um, And so it's not only a joy for the one being baptized, but it's also a joy for the local congregation that stands before you and is going to love you and support you um, and allow you to continue to to stand fast in the faith. So just to wrap up, what is baptism? How important is mode? Um, So this is from the Didache. This is an early church document from the first to second century. Uh, It says in chapter seven, and concerning baptism, baptized this way, having first said all these things, baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in living water. But if you have not living water, baptized into other water. And if you cannot in cold and warm, but if you have not either pour out water thrice upon the head and into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But therefore the baptism... But before the baptism, let the baptizer fast and the baptized and whatever others can, but you shall order the baptized to fast one or two days before. Um, So it seemed to me that in the beginning, in the first and second century, as the early church was coming to fruition, um, that immersion was the main way of baptism. Um, And and, and some churches, as we we know, practice infant baptism and practice the sprinkling. and, and I'll say this as we talk about the gospel, as we talk about a clear picture of the gospel, 
there is no clear picture of the gospel in this. There is a clear picture of the gospel in this. To be dipped, to be immersed, um, to be baptized into the death and be raised newness of life. Um, And it's interesting because John Calvin, as he commentates on the gospels, according to John, John Calvin says this, from these words, we may infer that John and Christ administered baptism by plunging the whole body beneath the water. So John Calvin was a, a Scottish reformer um, and a, and a pedo baptist and so one who baptized infants. And it, yet even John Calvin would say, as he commentates on the Bible, that immersion was the main way. And so as Christians, we want to be faithful to the Bible. We want to be faithful to what the Bible says about just not not just baptism, but about everything. So we must try to come to the most biblical conclusion about what the Bible says. Um, And then last, I'll comment on infant baptism. What do we do with it? Um, And I'm going to take this Baptist stance. I'm not sure if this would be um, a similar Baptist stance as other believers, and they can can disagree with me or they can agree with me. Um, But simply, I would say that infant baptism is just not baptism. Um, And I say that because... Um, we are not sure um, of the credible faith of that infant. We very well think that it could be saved by God. Um, but we would say that uh, they are not baptized. It's just not a, a clear baptism of the Bible. Um, and so we would encourage one as, as someone who maybe has been baptized before in a different tradition by infant baptism and by sprinkling, we would encourage them to come to Lakeview and say, hey, brother or sister, we, we love you and we see that this is something that you participated in as a young person, um, but we can't guarantee that you are actually saved at that point. And so to make sure that we administer, administer something to you and be faithful to God, we would like you to be baptized by immersion and by believer's baptism. Um, like I said, that's my own opinion on that. You can disagree with me. Don't take that as anything more than just my own opinion, but I wanted to say that um, before we move on. So number two, covenant and themes. <clears throat> So I know this was touched on a little bit in Aaron's message on the people of God. We are a baptized people. We are a people that has been sealed by baptism, just as the old covenant, we were sealed by circumcision. So what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement, an oath, something that involves two parties working towards a common goal. Many of the covenants in the Old Testament were contingent on Israel keeping the law or providing a sign to hold up their end of the deal. God makes many covenants throughout the Old Testament with his people. Uh, in most of these Old Testament covenants, there's a sign that follows. So in the Noahic covenant, you see the rainbow. In the Abrahamic covenant, you see circumcision. In the Mosaic covenant, you see the Sabbath, which is given. And so all of this leads to the new covenant in Christ. All of these are types of, of Christ. And so um, the Old Covenant was, was of a nation and a state and a people, and it was exclusive to Jewish birth and descent. All Jewish males were to be circumcised as their initiation right into the covenant of grace on the eighth day um, to signify their membership in the covenant people. But in the new covenant, as Hebrews 7.22 tells us, the better covenant as Jesus as our guarantor, um, the covenant of Jesus Christ where he comes to make the old covenant obsolete. This is Hebrews 8.13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Um, and so through the new covenant, as, as Revelation 5, 9 tells us, we will see a ransom people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so praise the Lord for that. 
that through the blood of Christ, through the shedding of the veil, there's been a way for us Gentiles, for us pagans, um, as Ephesians 2 tells us that we were once alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, hostile to God. You can't get any worse than that, alienated from the love of God. And so through the blood of Christ and through his shedding of blood on the cross, we were brought near. And when we are baptized, we, are, we become a part of a family. We are baptized into a family. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. So just as circumcision was a sign for Israelite males entering into the family of God, so now baptism is a sign for covenant members in the new covenant. So we change from a mixed community of regenerate and unregenerate to the new covenant where we consist of only regenerate people. And as I said earlier, it's hard to, it's hard to for sure know, and only time will tell, the fruit of a person will tell, if once they are baptized in the, bapti- in the Baptist tradition, if they will continue to hold fast to that faith which they professed. Um, and only God knows, and, and we can only be there um, and see that baptism um, as credible and believable. And so... I want to comment um, as we move, and as I look on here, covenants and themes. So wrapping up covenants as Baptists because the new and better covenant in the revelation of Jesus Christ who came to earth and bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Only people who have professed their faith in Christ and call him Lord are to be a part of this new covenant. Only covenant people can receive a covenant sign. So it would make sense that we only give baptism to those who have professed faith those who have said, hey, I want to be a part of God's family. And, and even on the, on the flip side of that, to refuse the covenant sign, to, to be a Christian and say, well, I've been saved by faith alone. I don't need this work. I don't, you know, this is not faith plus baptism. And we're not preaching that. Um, but to refuse the covenant sign and yet align with the covenant people, it just doesn't make sense. So to say, hey, I'm a part of God's family, but I haven't been given the sign, i.e. baptism, it doesn't make sense. So let's think about this theme of salvation in water. Um, And we must remember, as David Chilton says in his book, Paradise Restored, as he talks about how do we read the Bible, how do we interpret the end times, Scripture interprets Scripture. So we see water in the Bible, um, and we see baptism. What else does the Bible have to say about this, this idea of us passing through water for salvation? Noah and the flood. God spared Noah and his family by allowing to pass through the waters of judgment, and then he set up a covenant with them. In baptism, we are able to safely pass through the waters of judgment that makes us well for salvation in Jesus. Moses and the Israelite people passed through the Red Sea, the water purification rites of the Old Testament. So you had to be washed before you could enter into the temple. The crossing of the Jordan River in Joshua 3. Um, Peter Lightheart, who is the president of the Theopolis Institute in Birmingham, Alabama at Trinity Presbyterian Church. He gives us a good quote. and I think this could be helpful. Once we start thinking about baptism in the matrix between old and new, our horizon broadens. Rather than narrow our focus to the effect of baptism on an individual, we can ask what baptism says about the world. It's a sign of the new covenant, which by its very existence tells us we live in the new world, born from the advent of the Son and Spirit. What is baptism, you ask? Baptism is a ritual clock. It tells us what time it is. So the very existence of us having baptism and being in the new covenant tells us that Christ has come. He has come and he has died on our behalf and he was raised 
And as we've talked about, as we've gone through this progression on Wednesday nights in the Apostles' Creed, he has ascended and he is alive. And so we can have um, hope in that. So when we are baptized, we become a part of the kingdom of God set up on earth. Um, as the Lord's Prayer says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Welcome to kingdom work, brother or sister. You have now entered into this glorious work for Christ. As Ephesians 2 tells us, um, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So as a new believer, um, God, before the beginning of time, gave you good works to do. So go and do them as a new believer as you've received that new covenant sign. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1.28. And the third thing I want to talk about as we close, uh, I mean, I think this might be my favorite one, um, is the unification in Christ. So deaths to one's old way of life and rising to a new kind of life in Christ. So our last scripture I want to take a look at is Romans 6. So if you want to turn to Romans 6, we're going to be in verse 3. Romans 6, 3 through 5. So Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So when we're baptized, we now associate ourselves with Christ. We are his. We call him ours, and he calls us mine. Hallelujah. And so this picture of baptism, in the sense that you are dunked and immersed in water and are dead and buried with Christ, you have now been raised to life with him. And you are to put on Christ, put on the armor of God as you come up from the water. Um, and so but we can't lose sight of this. We can't lose sight of, of seeing baptism and seeing it you know, and praise the Lord, we have it most every Sunday as we see new people come to Christ, as we see baptism. And so I, I hope when you think about it, um, that you're able to see that um, as you think back to your baptism. So um, I'm, I'm going to return back to the Westminster Larger Catechism, and I think this is really interesting. And it might not make much sense at first, but just stay with me. Um, this is question 167 from the Westminster Larger Catechism. And the question is, how is our baptism to be improved by us? The answer, the needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in the time of temptation and when we are present at the administration of it to others. By serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby, and our solemn vow made therein, by being humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of, and walking contrary to the grace of baptism in our engagements, by growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and of all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament, by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized for the mortifying of sin and quickening of grace, and by endeavoring to live by faith to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness at those that have therein given up their names to Christ and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized with the same spirit into one body. 
So I know it's long, but think about this and to summarize this, it says in, in times of temptation, remember your baptism. In times when you're doubtful, remember your baptism. When we're present, remember your baptism. When we're present at the administration of it by others. It, it calls to mind the gospel. Um, you may have heard the, the statement, you know, preach the gospel to yourself each and every day as we fall short, as all of us do, as some of us, most of us, all of us have sinned already today. Um, but we're thankful to be here and to receive the blessings of Christ today. So lastly, I want to say baptism is founded upon Christ. Without the resurrection and death of Christ, Christ has not been raised. Then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. For if the dead are not raised, even, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So as you leave today, walk in a manner worthy of Christ. Walk in a manner that you can call to remembrance your baptism if you have been baptized in the room. If you haven't been baptized, um, as you've learned, as you've learned today about baptism, as we've talked about, as we've talked about the, the ins and outs of all of it, um, to conclude, if you have questions about baptism, if you want to know if baptism is a right step for you, if you have not been baptized, if you have not come to saving faith in Christ, talk to me, talk to your table leaders, um, talk to Rasha, talk to anybody who's here today. Um, we would love to help you and, and point you to the right step in that direction. So um, I hope today, like I said, my prayer is that we're able to have a better understanding of what baptism is, how it relates to the old and new covenant in Christ, um, and also how we can call to remembrance our, back to our baptism in times of temptation, in times of good, in times of bad, uh, and remember that Christ is seating on our throne, is seating on the throne, interceding on our behalf each and every day. Um, so let me pray for us. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for just giving um, me the diligence. And thank you to Aaron and all the men and women who have gone before us and before me who have given me insight um, to be able to prepare this and to be able to teach. God, I pray that um, your word would not return void today. They would rest on our hearts. We'd be encouraged. We'd be strengthened by it, God. Um, I pray that in these times of discussion, that we would talk about you, we would talk about your faithfulness throughout all generations. We would talk about how baptism points us to you, how baptism is a sign of being a new covenant member. Um, yeah, God, I, I thank you for this wonderful ordinance that I know I too often look at and think, oh, well, it's just another baptism, just another person getting wet. Uh, but it's so much more than that, and you tell us that in your word. So, God, I pray that we would remember that as we leave today from this place and we go on living our lives and honoring you. Amen.